The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome Magnus, Magnus Garda, to uh, today's show. Uh, now, prior to co-founding Sidron Ventures, Magnus was an investment manager at the transatlantic venture fund Nauta Capital, spearheading the firm's investment initiatives in Northern Europe, out of London. So, uh, Magnus, a very warm welcome. Thank you, Gary. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Magnus, just to kick things off, love to hear a little bit about your entree to the world of venture capital. So well, maybe we'll, my accent will give me away a little bit. I'm originally from the Nordics, from Norway, but I haven't lived there for the last 13 years. So left pretty early on during my studies to take a, a uh, educational background, I guess you could say, in a combination of computer science and finance. I did that at University of Pennsylvania, uh, sort of specializing in artificial intelligence and machine learning on the computer science side, and then the rest of the courses uh, in finance out of uh, the Wharton School. Ended up a few years, as many <laughs> Wharton alumni do, uh, in New York, sort of doing large-cap investment banking. And then uh, from there, eventually moved over to London, was part of starting up a new investment bank there called Portico Capital. And finally, having done that for a while, ended up in venture capital for Nauta, as you said, sort of leading out their investment practice really in Northern Europe with a focus on UK, Scotland, and the Nordics. That brought me more or less to Sidron Ventures, which, you know, I'd always had an ambition of building out the Nordic-focused VC fund. But, you know, you have to build a certain level of experience, a certain network before you think you can take that leap. And I come to that point in my career where uh, it made a lot of sense. Uh, I met several of my co-founders. We decided to pull together. We saw a real unmet need in the market and decided to pull together a strategy and a team that could sort of fit that uh, unmet need. Does it make sense to just give sort of 30 seconds, uh, Gary, on what we do? Go ahead. So basically at Sidron, we are focused again on sort of helping Nordic companies with technology companies with international expansion. And what you've seen in in the Nordics is that there is um, a lot of actually incredible early stage, really strong early stage ecosystem with a lot of seed funds, a lot of accelerator programs, incubators, angels, et cetera. But what's really missing is you know, our mentors or funds that can help with what those companies need at the Series A and B level, which is the international expansion piece. So there's obviously a lot of funds in London, et cetera, that like we did at Nauta looking in. But what I think you really need is a fund with boots on the ground locally and in the expansion geographies. And so that is what uh, what Sidron Ventures' thesis is, and that's sort of what we're bringing to the market. So we do have uh, Gary, a team in um, in Sweden, uh, where we're headquartered, in Oslo, as well as in the States. So we're sort of covering those areas with people who are from there, who previously built successful large businesses in those regions, and sort of bringing that experience to the portfolio companies to help them expand. So that's just uh, quickly, and and again, uh, just uh, should mention that uh, it's um, mainly B two B tech that we're focused on. So, uh, you know, anything in and around artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, gaming platforms, but not gaming companies, ed tech, financial technology, etc. Just a quick, quick uh, intro on us, uh, Gary. And I know you've got some really strong views on international expansion, on the timing of international expansion for European 
ventures. So tell us a little ab- about those uh, those views. So, you know, as you sort of mentioned, one of the big challenges of international expansion is getting the timing right. So it is important to recognize that the company needs to be ready both from a product and a resource standpoint. And on the flip side, of course, the market has to be ready for adoption. So without really mentioning specific names here, we've seen several cases where the move has been done way too fast before the company really had the resources or the team to support such an expansion. So what that typically has led to is obviously sales slowdowns, inability to launch successfully in those new regions, increased capital requirements, higher burn rates, uh, lower returns, etc. But eventually, in many cases, it could lead to write-offs and, and really the company never being able to, um, to pull it off. So I think you know, getting that timing right when the company is ready is, is incredibly important. How would you advise one of these entrepreneurs on getting the timing right for their particular product and their particular market? So I think the devil is a bit in the detail here. It really depends on what kind of business and, and what stage the company is currently at. Uh, you know, we've, what we typically did uh, at Nauta, which is what we're also doing at Sidron, is such a landing platform strategy where we will, let's say it's a, let's say it's a company from a non-hub region, so they're not from London or they're not from Silicon Valley or New York, where basically we take them to a core hub initially, where sort of you, we try to become, and this in Europe is typically London has been for us, and becoming market leaders or strong players uh, on the home um, continent, and then sort of seeing what capital is required to make that happen and how the adoption uh, goes there. And when that has sort of successfully been done, and you know, obviously tracking metrics around that, uh, then take tackling sort of the big beast, which is the U.S., and o- often the final goal for a lot of these companies, uh, then you know, moving on there would make sense. But again, we do try to become sort of market leaders or strong at the home continent first using that landing platform strategy. Uh, and again, that allows us to test out in sort of somewhat smaller markets before going after big guys. So I think that's really important. And again, those companies that we've seen that are trying to tackle too many markets at the same time, uh, that has never been a particularly successful strategy. So you're not a big fan of the idea of let's launch the business almost simultaneously in North America and Europe, or at least go to the States very, very soon after launch. Yeah, no, I, I do think that there's very few businesses that actually fits that model. I think you know, it's much safer uh, and makes much more sense to try it out on a local scale first. Obviously, one thing is, is trying out and making sure you have the interest from the people, but scaling in a new region, such as the US, where there's tremendous competition, a lot of probably competing products, right? And where you might not have the right network, where you might not know the right people, where you might not have inroads to new partners, new customers, it requires significant time and resource, uh, both from a money standpoint, uh, but also from the wider team uh, to make that successful. So really to scale in parallel in different geographies, particularly large geographies like take tackling all of Europe and the US at the same time, sounds like a, an unwise choice and has in my experience been so, uh, unless in very, very rare cases. Good advice. Let's talk about the sort of people you need to bring in in order to succeed internationally. So I know in a previous conversation, you emphasized the importance of getting the sales and marketing teams right and getting the the cultural 
fit to the target market. Mm. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that. Again, we're focusing more on B2B. Uh, and one of the biggest challenges of B2B companies is getting their sales and marketing teams right. So just want to touch quickly on say, mention that there are many benefits to B2B, but we do know that the sales cycles can be longer and harder. Uh, and there's a, there's a key need for strong sales and marketing teams. So as you're sort of mentioning here, and as we spoke about, it's sort of particularly true in those international expansion situations where the new team's culture and network is incredibly important. And all that new hiring, right, is happening in a region where the management team might not have, might have little or might not have any experience from before. So I've actually seen several cases, and this has happened at Napa uh, in companies that we've just tracked, not necessarily invested in, but where we've seen several cases where, you know, those companies came to us, they showed solid expansion forecasts, they were moving into the States, uh, yet six months later, they were back in our offices with forecasts heavily adjusted down. And again, sort of reasoning being that the sales and marketing teams did not perform uh, the way that, you know, they had expected or what was needed in the new regions. So suddenly, you know, they're six months behind their numbers. And again, as I mentioned, this is a really huge challenge. I think one of the most difficult challenges to overcome for B2B businesses. And it needs to be taken into consideration, I think, by both entrepreneurs as well as the investors going into those companies. So I would say uh, as a recommendation, really, to those entrepreneurs out there looking to do expansion I'd say team up with board members uh, or venture capitalists, mentors who have done it before in those regions and who can help with their network and expertise there. And this is something that we're really focused on. And I think in this day and age, you really have to add value above and beyond capital. And so to be able to say, hey, you know, we actually can connect you. We can initially help with the simple logistics, but then connect you with the right kind of people that have uh, you know, potentially new customers, new partners in those regions, but also mentors that can help you build and, and get the hiring right, I think that is, uh, that is key for entrepreneurs to think about when they're selecting their investors. You touched upon the differences between B2B and B2C a few moments ago, and you've got some strong views on capital efficiencies for startups. So um, tell us some more about your thoughts on the relative capital efficiencies in a B2B versus B2C startup. So first, I just want to say that I, I never go out and say B2B is more interesting or better or gives better returns in the long run for investors than B2C. That is not, uh, not necessarily the case at all. Uh, they're just completely different animals, and it does require a very different skill set, I think, to be successful with uh, one or the other. Uh, now, in terms of B2B, you know, we do know that B2B companies typically have different monetization strategies than in B2C. So in B2C, what we often see is commission-based platforms, uh, freemium models. Uh, we see advertising-based monetization strategies, et cetera. And what all of those have in common is that actually it requires a substantial amount of users before any meaningful revenue is generated because each, um, each additional user generates so little revenue. They're all hit-based monetization strategies, as we call them. So... This would obviously require a lot of marketing, typically, uh, in order to get that kind of user base. And again, I'll you what we've seen is a lot of the B2C companies have built out quite large and haven't really even thought about how they're going to make a sustainable business that is actually adding tangible value to its customers or users and actually can earn money off of what they're doing. Versus in the B2B case, 
what we typically have is subscription models. So they're typically SaaS type of businesses where, yes, uh, much longer sales cycles, harder sales. But once you are in the company with a customer, then normally it, again, uh, it starts rolling on a monthly basis and you can be paid one month or a quarter or a year up front. So what you'll see then is it is a typically much higher level of capital efficiency in those B2B businesses than you see in the B2C counterparts. And so just quickly, while you had me on that topic, it's important also to mention a few other differences. You know, we we do think that sort of seeing on, on the B2B side of things that those uh, businesses, in addition to capital efficiency, it's also a stronger level typically of financial sustainability and the performance visibility is quite big as well because we can sort of look at what customers have they gotten in the past how much are they generating? And you know, what customers do we think it's likely that they're going to get in the future? And what will those generate? So it's easier for an investor, I think. It's more metric-driven in that sense and easier for an investor to put up value on it. And thus, finally, it's more protected against valuation bubbles that we, uh, I think a lot of people is really concerned about in this, this day and age uh, that you know, a lot of these companies are very overvalued. And you mentioned sustainability or building a sustainable business with regards to your portfolio companies. Tell us a little about sustainability as it applies to your fund. What are your plans for the next few years and how are you going to build a sustainable venture fund? So we have uh, actually defined, we initially started out seeing you know, what's missing in the Nordics and then we built a team that could address that. So we will continue to obviously push forward uh, with our strategy, be very careful not to deviate too much from that. Uh, it's a strategy we really believe in. And again, like you said, it's to find those financially sustainable, but also with a thought about ESG sustainability, right? So ESG criteria in combination with a financial aspect and you know, to really uh, dig out those innovative companies in the Nordic region and then you use our network and experience to help those companies with international expansion. Like I mentioned uh, in the intro, that has historically and still is quite a missing element in the Nordic region. And Sweden has actually become the second most prolific startup hub in the world after Silicon Valley. So there's a lot of uh, potential there. And it's really extraordinary that uh, there's such a huge um, credit uh, crunch, Series A, Series B crunch going on right now. You mentioned it. ESG sustainability. What does ESG stand for? Environmental, social, and governance. So it's a set of criteria where, uh, and again, I just want to make a disclaimer here that we're not actually a positive impact or an impact fund, as they call it. Uh, it's a very careful or specific definition, but we do uh, consider those aspects in our investments. And we've actually recently hired. Uh, the lady who used to run Clinton Foundation's ESG um, impact investing sort of um, initiative. So she's joined us uh, and really tracking companies from that angle. And so, again, it's not that we you know, have to measure and track those things in our businesses, but it's something that we certainly think about when we do make an investment. So it has to be sustainable from both a financial and an ESG perspective. Um, I think, to really catch our appetites. Lovely. It's great to hear that you and your colleagues have got a strong social conscience to match up with your uh, financial and commercial uh, expertise. Slight change of direction now. Looking back, I asked you uh, about your 
entree into the world of venture capital. What do you know now that you really wish you had known when you started out as a VC? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, the list is uh, is probably uh, relatively long, but um, if I um, if I were to sort of think about what I think is is the most important things, I guess um, that you do uh, that you do experience that you might be a little bit naive uh, on. At least I was upfront. Is that early stage company development? It always always takes longer than you expect. So actually, judging a startup's time to success, and you know the future capital need that comes with that timing, that is a continuous challenge. And I certainly have uh, misjudged that in the past, and it's uh, it's something that you're continuously sort of looking at as something hard to judge. So again, reaching milestones and securing key contracts for early companies, uh, it does take longer than you expect. And again, that comes with a higher capital requirement. And as a fund understanding a business capital requirement and how many additional rounds and how much extra capital you might have to put in is is really important for successfully running your fund and successfully building those businesses. There's a few other things that I would like to mention that is important here. Thinking a little bit about your question here, Gary, that also, you know, key point is around integrity. So this is something that you sort of know, but uh, from the start, but something that you learn to really, at least I've learned to really focus on, had a couple of somewhat uh, crazy things happen uh, with several companies where you do never compromise on integrity, making sure that the team is 100% trustworthy and that you can really you know, have that trust with each of the people in the management team. I mean, the truth is that a lot of business breaking challenges could surface if the team's integrity is not 100%. So uh, this is something that we would never, ever uh, compromise on now. And the last thing sort of attached to that that I will also say is not to compromise on the quality and qualifications of the management team. We do know that sort of this has become a cliche, but ultimately, if you have to pick between product and people as an investor in an early stage company, you would always pick people first. Culture does beat strategy. You have to make sure that you're backing the right kind of people that can bring that company through all the ups and downs and still sort of beat that incredible volatile landscape, volatile landscape that uh, that you have to sort of face as, a, as an entrepreneur. So I think those three points are probably, if I were to pick something that I think is very, very important, then I would tell myself if I started all over again. How do you as a fund or even you as an individual investor, Magnus, how do you satisfy yourself before you hand over the first check that the people you're investing in, the team you're investing in, has the integrity, has the cultural affinity that you're looking for? It's something I spent a lot of time on, actually. It's, it's a, um, the answer is it's a combination of data gathering, of actual sort of scientific work, and psychology. I think as a, as a venture investor, you need to have uh, an interest in human beings. You need to like to analyze people, understand their personalities from conversations, try to get a, a feeling for how they would act in difficult situations later, because certainly you are going to face those together. Uh, and it's a long marriage and you have to make sure that you get along with that person that you're investing in, but also that they can live up to the standards that you will uh, and the rest of the company will set for them. Again, combination of doing a lot of reference checks. We do that always. Uh, looking at what they've done in the past, looking at potentially having had successful businesses before, how that's gone, what the hurdles were, how they've dealt with those challenges. 
But again, as I said, psychology, talking a lot with them. We do spend a lot of time. We're not one of those ones that just sit and talk to someone and then sort of make a decision immediately. We do spend a lot of time following a company, getting to really know the management team and their business. So for us, uh, the psychology aspect is certainly, uh, certainly important. And I think it comes with experience. Tell me about uh, the company you've most recently invested in and some thoughts on why specifically you decided that that company, that team was a good fit for you. So we're still fundraising at Sidron, but we'll be making investments uh, very short, shortly out of this, out of our newest fund. But um, I can talk about the, one of the investments I did pretty recently at Nauta, which was a very exciting company called Be My Eye. And a little shout out to, uh, to Lucas and the guys there, which has done a terrific job. Uh, Be My Eye is actually a market research platform uh, that's crowd-driven. So what they actually do uh, in quite simple terms is, I will first just mention what sort of the competitors, the original market research guys like Nielsen do. They spend weeks collecting, you know, sort of price checking, promotion verification, mystery shopping, just making sure that all the products for one of their clients, let's say Coca-Cola, uh, is being presented and sold right uh, in the marketplace. Now, what BMI does instead is say, hey, let's um, we've created an app. Let's push jobs out for Coca-Cola to the crowd so that people like you and I can open up the Be My app, Be My Eye app, and we can see that there are jobs uh, all around on my map. And I run from store to store and I take, let's say it's price verification, right? Take pictures of the prices. And then with technology through the phone, the Be My Eye app verifies that data, making sure it's that you know the people running around aren't cheating in any way. And then essentially collecting thousands of data points for Coca-Cola in just a matter of one to two hours at a fraction of the cost that uh, a company like Nielsen would do. So this is where you. This is a perfect example of, a, of sort of a crowd-based platform that's really solving, really sort of disrupting an industry that is quite uh, archaic and has not been disrupted by new tech yet. So I'm quite excited about that one. Take you out of your comfort zone. If you weren't a VC, what other profession or pastime would you love to uh, would you love to focus on you know if i weren't allowed to say founder obviously of a technology company because that would be incredibly exciting but if i want if i were to go a little further away from that uh, i'd actually say uh, Gary, uh, i'd like to try to either be a software developer for companies such as uh, square enix or something companies that i think are exciting big businesses that have created some really cool products or even further away, something like a carpenter. And here's why. Uh, I love building stuff. So whether it's, you know, sort of developing software or working with my hands uh, with woodwork, building things, those are sort of hobbies that I do on the side. So, you know, one of those, maybe if I were to to step away from what I'm doing and, and not work as a, as a founder of a tech company or a VC. Do you ever get the sense when you're speaking to an entrepreneur, wow, I really wish I wasn't in VC that I was running that business uh, that I'd had that idea. Do you ever get that inkling? Wow, this is something I'd rather be doing. Yeah, I, uh, I don't think I get the the feeling that I'd rather be doing it. But certainly, many times I said, "Wow, that's an incredible idea. I wish I'd come up with that myself." But I do, um, I do think you know one of the incredible things, Gary, being in VC and why I feel certainly very lucky to be in this space is that we we do have the chance 
to be part of those teams. You know, someone has come up with an incredible idea and they're going to build that and make an impact internationally. And as a VC, we're allowed to take part in that journey, typically as a board member, and help influence, bring advice, and help those companies grow from the, somewhat from the side. And that is, uh, that is what I think is so incredibly exciting about our uh, line of work. Talking of uh, incredible business ideas, Magnus, are there any businesses that slip through your fingers that you really wish, looking back, that you'd uh, managed to invest in them, but for, for some reason, maybe the timing wasn't right, uh, for some reason you didn't manage to, uh, to engage with them? There will always be investments that you sort of wish you'd done that you didn't do. But I, I, I want to say something that actually that actually my old boss, Anata, uh, used to tell me, and that's you're only judged on the investments you make. You, you can miss a ton of businesses. You'll never hit all of them. That's good, right? But just make sure that the ones you do uh, that you really believe in those companies and hopefully can minimize the right up rate for the fund. So again, you're judged on the investments you do, not the ones you didn't make. But if I were to sort of look at some companies I wish I'd done, uh, as there was actually a Bitcoin-based fintech startup in 2000 and uh, was it quite early? I can't remember the exact year, but it's certainly grown a lot in value since back then. I was worried actually that the market was not ready. Uh, so we did pass on it and you know, to be honest, I actually think we're still quite early in blockchain's uh, lifespan. Uh, regulations, you know, have you know sort of been put in place. Uh, once those regulations have been put in place, and blockchain protocols become more widespread in general industry, uh, I do think we'll see a lot of near-term growth potential for technology platforms in the blockchain sector. So I'm sort of defending my <laughs> my choice to pass on that, even though it was a successful company. Other than that, I'd like to do a little uh, little uh, shout out to Unicast in Norway. Uh, you know, they've, uh, it, it is actually a business I did pass on while at NATA and they went on to, to raise, um, a, a significant amount of money from investors. I know really well in the Nordics, I think absolutely that we did make the right decision for our fund at that point in time, but they're a location-based data platform and there's a big push right now for brick and mortar stores like your Pret or eat or whatever those stores in London might be that, you know, want to try to figure out sort of the, the shopping patterns of their offline customers, right? The people that are walking in the stores. There's a big push to do targeted advertising in from the offline world. And so I think that those companies that do bridge that gap between offline and online worlds are increasingly interesting. And Unicast was just one of those. So um, yeah, just a little shout out to them in Norway. Let's talk about your perspective on the European VC and startup ecosystem and how it compares to the States and what perhaps needs to change in Europe. So what are the main changes you would like to see in this continent? That's a very interesting question, actually. If I can, I'd like to approach this by highlighting actually a really positive thing that I think is, is, is unique in Europe, especially in venture capital compared to sort of my old stomping grounds, which is more mid cap, large cap, private equity and M&A. But what you see is here in Europe in venture, it's a lot of cooperation between the funds. And what that means is that, you know, not really competing, but the if I've come across a company and it's a really consumer-based company and I know that, wow, I don't know too much about how to analyze this business. I'm not sure how much value we could add. You know, I'd call up one of my friends in one of the other funds and I'd say, hey, what do you think about this business? Is that something you might be interested in? And we'll have a debate about it. 
and then I'll send that over to him and vice versa. So actually, I feel this is a big benefit for both entrepreneurs and investors that the deals typically end up with the appropriate investors that can add real value to those businesses. That's a huge positive thing. I'd like to say something, obviously answering your question around what's missing, but here at the here I think I, I want to address this, uh, Gary, if that's okay, from a Nordic standpoint where um, where I'm really focused, what's really missing there. And you know, and this is this is very much also compared to the US. And what we have that's really missing in the Nordics uh, is again access to the right type of capital at the Series A and B level. And I'm saying a right type of capital, because what I mean is that what we talked about before is that entrepreneurs should not just focus on cash, but also what the investors can bring above and beyond funding. So if you take a moment to look at the stats in the Nordics, you know, 51% of all the billion dollar venture-backed startups since 2005 came from the Nordics. That's over half, and we're sort of only 3% of Europe's population. So it's it certainly blew my mind uh, quite a lot when I first looked into these, uh, this data. As mentioned before, a, a truly thriving early-stage ecosystem. So again, what's missing there, uh, and we have addressed this a little before, but again, I just want to say, is a fund with boots on the ground in the sourcing geographies locally, so in the Nordics, but also in the expansion geographies. So for instance, one of our team members uh, has sold, you know, is, is based in San Francisco and has sold three of his uh, businesses for more than 550 million US dollars each. So it's that type of experience and network that we'd like to bring uh, to our portfolio companies when we help them out. So I think that's what's really missing. And hopefully, um, Gary, we can uh, we can do something about it at the uh, Sidron. Sounds like you're uh, making some uh, inroads, some strong inroads in exactly that area. Final question from me, Magnus. There are any... Uh, Nordic entrepreneurs or leadership teams listening in and they're looking for some some guidance, some advice on pitching you and your colleagues. What are the three things they need to do to grab your attention and to engage with you in some uh, some meaningful conversations about uh, potentially investing in their business? The first advice I'd give is to really research the different funds before you're reaching out. It's not a problem, uh, you know, to reach out to a fund a little bit before uh, you're ready for investment. Obviously, I think, uh, speaking for myself, but I think most funds like to follow companies for a while before they actually invest. So that could actually make sense. But just, you know, making sure that the fund that you're reaching out to has some experience in your line, in your sector, in your industry, having built companies with similar models to business models to your own. I think that's important both for the entrepreneurs themselves, but also not to waste, uh, waste the um, the investors' time. So that's the first thing: doing some research, making sure there's a match in terms of thesis by the fund and what the company is actually doing. Uh, the second thing is is um, and I, there's a lot of things you could recommend, but the second thing I would say is just making sure that you have really done the work around sort of making sure that your numbers, uh, the data that you have, that everything is presentable and ready. Obviously, you can't. Make sure that it's 100%. If you're seriously going into a fundraise, uh, and we've seen this many times where you come in and you ask, so, you know, how's your month-to-month growth looking? What's the gross profit margins? How's churn looking? Et cetera, looking at different things. And you can't answer most of those questions, then I think you're not going to make a great first impression on the investors. So making sure that you have done that work up front is very important, I think, for all parties. Having spent some time on that deck that you're delivering, 
again, another important piece. And you can talk to, if you have friends working in venture capital space, uh, you can talk to them uh, and get some advice. And always don't be afraid of actually reaching out to people, uh, even though you don't have a warm intro. As VCs, uh, particularly as speak to for myself again, do really appreciate getting uh, inbounds from, from entrepreneurs directly. And we will try to respond to everything we get in. So uh, more than happy, Gary, to obviously provide advice directly to entrepreneurs. I would encourage people listening to this to reach out to us and to me specifically, personally, by email, magnus.gorder at sidronventures.com and uh, it's first name dot last name at sidronventures.com. To just say that Sidron is actually Nordics backwards. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a fun with the words there. And my uh, Twitter handle is uh, Magnus Riga. So my first name and then R-I-G-A. So, uh, you know, again, uh, definitely have any questions, want to ask uh, about advice or reach out with your startup, uh, please do feel free to do so. I will get back to people as soon as I can. That's really generous of you, Magnus. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Great advice on, for example, smart money and smart investors and clearly your smart investors and how and when to scale internationally. So uh, awesome talking to you. And I wish you and the team at uh, Sidron Ventures every success finalizing your your own fundraising and getting out there and, and investing in some great new startups. Thank you, Gary. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. <laughs>